And now, The Low Post. Welcome to a late night edition of The Low Post podcast, almost midnight Eastern time. The Miami Heat. The Miami freaking Heat. With one of the more surprising playoff wins that I can remember, 111-103, Jimmy Butler channeling LeBron James circa 2012 in the TD Garden with the Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler had 27 points combined in games 3, 4, and 5 of this series. On 10 of 40 shooting, 27 points in three games. In game six with the Heat wheezing, seemingly one foot in the grave for 2022, 16 of 29, 47 points, an absolute masterpiece. This is one of the most shocking games, game outcomes that I can remember going into this game. Miami was minus 41 for the series. They looked like in game five, they had given the one last competitive half they had with Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler looking like shells of themselves due to injury. Max Struess is a little banged up. The whole team is a little banged up. And it looked like they were just out of gas going on the road for game six against a team that has been the best team in the NBA since about January 10th. And behind a masterpiece from Jimmy Butler, a resurrection from Kyle Lowry, 18 points, 10 assists, a personal 5-0 run after the Celtics had taken a three-point lead with four minutes and 32 seconds left in the fourth quarter. A game that we've seen a million times over where the allegedly better team at home after taking counterpunch after counterpunch after counterpunch finally gets ahead, lands the big one, and then, you know, wins by seven or eight. And the Heat said, no, no thanks. We'll take the game. We'll go through crunch time in a minute. But I I just, now we get to look at this game and look ahead to a game seven for all the marbles on the shores of Biscayne Bay on Sunday night. Mark your calendars, put some beverages in the fridge to help us analyze what we just saw mere minutes ago. We need, a, we need a calm, rational brain to temper my exuberance. My hair's all messed up. I, I gotta I gotta I have a peach seltzer here to get me through the podcast late at night. I'm giddy. Kevin Pelton, how are you? Well, it's still early out on the West Coast, so maybe that explains. But uh, I, I don't know if I was as calm during the midst of that that run that you highlighted. I mean, you, that was the moment. I, as you said, the script says, Celtics finally take the lead. Derek White three, TD Garden erupting, and the Derek White game. I, I haven't even mentioned his name yet. Derek White. He, he got robbed. Twenty two points, four of seven from three. Couldn't hit a three to save his life. The entire playoffs just hit four in one game. Looked like he was going to save the series for the Celtics. Looked like he was going to put. Just justify, if it needed to be justified, the entire Derek White trade and experience. If you make the finals, everything's gone. It's an A+. Plus. Every trade's an A+. Plus. I, I, I'm sorry. Keep going. I'm flustered. You said Derek White, and I lost my mind again. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I was, uh, I, I was feeling the emotions at that moment, certainly, when Miami answered with Kyle Lowry and just 
so many huge swings emotionally in this game in terms of the calls that you know really seem to play a, a huge role in, in this because of the fact that there's these two teams are playing such a physical style that you can call a, a foul on every play at times the referees seem determined to call a foul on every play and ultimately like as much as you might want to say the Celtics needed to come out with more energy to start the game that the Celtics continue to cost themselves the turnovers that uh, Tim Bontemps has lamented on this podcast over and over again look the Miami Heat won this game and we're gonna we're gonna hear a lot more about heat culture as a result of this effort particularly if they go on to win game seven Look, a lot of the Celtics turnovers, not a lot, they're, they're, they're just almost as is the case with every team, a certain chunk of Celtics turnovers are just going to be like, what the, what the hell were you doing, man? Like, you just fell over? Did you forget how to dribble? Did you not, Al Horford, did you not see Jimmy Butler there lurking to intercept this pass? And when I started writing down heat counter punches or heat answers every time the Celtics would get it within five, six, seven, the Heat would make a big play. I ran out of space. <laughs> one of them was Al Horford throwing the ball to Jimmy Butler. He had a steal and an and one to put the lead back up to seven, 63, 56. Uh, another bad turnover for the Celtics. But a lot of the turnovers are, this is a really good handsy defense. And the Heat have Heat fans have been complaining about the free throw differential the entire series, and it, and I think Boston has probably gotten like a 5% more favorable whistle than Miami, if that, but a lot of that is baked into the Heat experience. They foul a lot, and the, the, the benefit of that is they get a lot of turnovers against teams who are turnover prone, so they've gotten the, the pluses and the minuses of that, but, you know, just one answer after another, but when it was not, I, I don't remember what the score, whenever the Celtics went up three, here, I have the play by 97-94? timeout heat, Lowry hits a three to tie the game on kind of like a random semi-broken out-of-timeout play that turned into Jimmy and Kyle just kind of handing the ball to each other. Um, Then he gets fouled on the next possession, makes two free throws, so a personal 5-0 run. Then uh, Smart ties the game, and then we have that crazy sequence where Smart misses a three on a terrible possession where they don't find Struess. One of the only possessions of the second half where the Celtics don't hunt down Max Struess, who is doing the best he can. And Derek White does the hose, what is now the Jose Alvarado almost, sneaking up behind Kyle Lowry, pokes the ball away. Jalen Brown gets fouled. You say, okay, they're about to go up two again and sort of restore it. Or 0 of 2 at the line, and it sort of devolves from there. Jimmy Butler makes a layup after that, an and one layup to put them up three, and they never relinquished the lead again. I don't know. Is what else did you want to hit on that stands out from crunch time or what the Heat did in this game? Did Did you watch that rewatch that Jimmy Butler play? Because uh, what the Celtics were trying to accomplish defensively there was unclear. But I I don't think it was to give Jimmy Butler a head of steam going towards the rim at that point of the game. So that's another one where I would credit Miami. I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but it was a Butler-Struess pick and roll because on one end, the Celtics are hunting Struess, and on the other end, the Heat are hunting White, not because White's a bad defender, but just because he's the only guy there that Jimmy Butler can like push around. And Struess comes up to set the screen, and I don't know, there's some random or maybe not random confluence of events where he abandons the screen early to start flaring out for a three. And Jimmy Butler starts to drive at the same time before the screen is even there. And that 
random sort of dual movement seemed to confuse Boston. Are we switching? Are we hedging? They ended up hedging. It wasn't a great hedge by White. Jimmy turned the corner, finished over Horford. If you had, by the way, if you had told me that in 2022, if you had told me in 2021 that in 2022 Al Horford foul trouble was going to be a major detriment to a team trying to clinch a finals berth, I would have been like, I, he just didn't play the whole season in Oklahoma City. What's going on? But that, to answer your question, it was it was some combination of eh, defense and creative offense by accident or maybe not by accident. And uh, Jalen Brown will rue those free throws for a long time. Yeah, especially on a night where both teams were perfect from the free throw line for a very long time. I was thinking about looking up whether that had ever happened in a playoff game with both teams making all their free throws. I mean, I think the other big storyline of tonight, besides, you know, as much as the Heat's effort certainly improved, as much as Jimmy Butler's health seemed to improve, because there was an explosion and uh, a burst from him that we just did not see in those two ineffective games. And we can talk about... You will never... I I just... It's... it's Jimmy Butler, playoff Jimmy, has never played and will never play three consecutive games as poorly or as sort of just non-existently as he played the three previous games in this series. It's just like it's not even plausible for him to do that if he's fully healthy and engaged. And like like you said tonight, keep talking about the, the explosion. Yeah, I mean, I think that as much as you want to talk about him taking a different approach and him being more aggressive, I I think the fact that he surely felt better physically facilitated that aggressiveness and the way that he was able to play. Because, again, we saw just a different, different physically. He was different physically in this game than he had been the last couple games. But the other aspect, the other overriding element of the difference between the last two games and this one is just another testament to the power of shot making and the variability of shot making from game to game. Miami misses all those open threes in game five. Kyle Lowry can't make a bucket to save his life. And all of a sudden, Kyle Lowry is knocking down threes. Max Struess, who had been in a terrible slump, hits a bunch of huge threes. Jimmy Butler is making four threes for the second time in the playoffs after he didn't do it in the entire regular season in a game. And, you know, that factor, I, I, I think... I think you can still argue as well as Miami played defensively that Boston got better shots, but Miami's shot making won the day. Well, Struess, at least two of Struess's three threes were one were heavily contested. One was a super long one late in the shot clock. Yes, but look, everyone, I, I just I, all the calls to bench Lowry and Struess between games five and six. I never really understood why you would do that because it's like. I mean, who are you? Who are you replacing them with? Caleb Martin, uh, Duncan Robinson, who's clearly lost the trust of the team. Like Max Struess is a good shooter. He didn't suddenly become a bad shooter. He's playing a great defense. Who's working him on the other end? He'll make shots eventually. Like Kyle Lowry has been limited and not good, and didn't make a shot for like consecutive games or whatever. Gabe Vincent has been very good. I, it's just a hard sell for me that I'm going to bench Kyle Lowry unless he comes and tells me like, look, I just can't, I can't move out there, and he he looked like a little bit like Kyle Lowry today. I mean, a quiet game from Bam, six shot attempts in 41 minutes. Tucker made both his threes. That's big. And just the big plays down the stretch, Miami, the all game Miami made these, these huge answer kind of plays and, and credit to them. They made shots. 
I mean, the other guy we haven't mentioned, I guess the only other player who saw action for the Heat is Victor Oladipo, who didn't do a ton offensively necessarily. But I just feel like there's something about the Heat defense that I like when Oladipo is out there and a plus 12 in this one off the bench tied with Adebayo for best on the team. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Spo, Spo's such an interesting coach because he's clearly if not the most well-prepared coach in the entire league in the top three, like the heat have, they know they have a plan for everything, every game all the time. And then there's this part of him that just kind of coaches by feel game to game. So guys come in the rotation and then they vanish. And tonight, Caleb Martin, goodbye. Duncan Robinson, you come in, you miss a three. Goodbye. All of a sudden we're unearthing the Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry pairing, which we have essentially not seen the entire playoffs, and then people start fouling out. Here comes Oladipo for Tucker, and it 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 worked, and I'm sure that we'll see the Gabe Vincent-Kyle Lowry pairing again in Game 7 because it, it worked this time as well. And on the flip side, I like and have always liked Boston going small with the white, smart Tatum-Brown-Horford lineup has been a great lineup for them the entire playoffs. They closed the game with it. I thought that was the right call. You know, you could argue Robert Williams should have maybe got back in. He he had been playing a good game, but just to, I just don't remember being. I, again, it's eleven four. It's eleven fifty three now. I'm halfway through my peach my peach seltzer. Um, I, I'm surely a prisoner of the moment, but not not. We were all in Miami. The whole NBA Today crew, plus you know a lot of our writers. None of us thought this was coming back to Miami for Game 7. It just looked like a team that was totally out of gas. And I'd have to go back and look at a late series game outcome that surprised me more than this one. I'm sure there is one. But let's put it this way. I did 20 to 30 minutes of Celtics-Warriors film prep today to try to get ahead of that series. Normally, I would do two or three hours. But I limited myself to 20 to 30 minutes because of this exact possibility. But... I, I certainly did not expect this outcome. Did you? No. I mean, I was I was in the same position. I've got a bunch of notes about how the Celtics match up with the Warriors that we'll see if they'll ever see the light of day, depending on what happens on Sunday. But uh, uh, certainly not on, on this particular podcast. I mean, I think, look, we were all completely confounded by Dallas dominating Phoenix the way that they did less than two weeks ago in Game 7. This is kind of a different one in terms of, it, Dallas winning that game seven wasn't the surprise. It was the magnitude of how much they won game seven by this. The outcome of it is the surprise. And, and you know, it wasn't a blowout, so it couldn't be the magnitude. It was, it was just the outcome of the game. And look, the heat, I, I was with heat people after game five and, and yesterday morning in Miami. It, it's not a joke to them. It's not pretend this mindset of we don't really like it looks bad to you guys to us all we think is we've got to win a road game i i know you guys you all can keep score of like oh boston's plus 41 oh the heat have only won x quarters which i can't believe why are we obsessing over this x oh the celtics have won all these quarters i mean under the under the old cba rules it would matter I get I, this Continental Basketball Association is what you're talking about, not the collective bargaining agreement. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, you must specify. Um, and it like you know, yeah, we looked bad, we looked gassed, all that. I mean, it's a serious thing to them. All we got to do is go win one road game. That's it. Everything else is noise. And they won one road game, and now we're we're going to Game Seven. I, I know we're all in the moment. We're on adrenaline after a game like this. Um, 
I, there are not a lot of mysteries left in a series that reaches seven games, particularly with two great defensive teams that are just searching for answers on offense continuously. Is there anything you saw tonight or even in game five when it was competitive that you that you'll say, you know, boy, I'd look for a little bit more of that in game seven or there's an adjustment in the bag for game seven. I mean, we've we've, we've seen a lot already. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's more going to be, like you said about Spose coaching, it's going to be dictated by the flow of the game. And foul trouble, I think, is going to be a big part of that. We, you know, Grant Williams played a, a reasonable number of minutes, but certainly didn't have the impact in this one that he's had in several games in this series because of the fact that he was in foul trouble all night. And one of the interesting pivot points in this game was his fifth foul, the decision by Ime Odoka to challenge that doesn't have it on a couple of pretty clearly missed calls later that you think he could have gotten the benefit of. There was the uh, the out-of-bounds call, and then he, the Derek White foul in the open court, I guess, wasn't a missed call. It, it probably would have not have been overturned for the, a similar reason. But uh, that's one you would have liked to have, especially once you saw that Grant Williams made that contact on the elbow. Yeah, the the use of the challenges is always, is always dicey. I, I didn't I, – I always like to save the challenge – Unless it's like a three-pointer at a pivotal moment or a four-point play or somebody's somebody critical's you know, fourth foul in the second quarter, I always like to save it for late. I didn't mind him using it there because Grant Williams is a big part of their team. That was on another of, of these heat baskets that is just they answered every time. That was a Jimmy Butler and one where Grant Williams hit him on the elbow to put the heat back up six after they had been, you know, the were within three or four. It was just over and over. And you mentioned Jimmy's um, burst, a play that stood out to me. And again, the, the Celtics had it down to one. It was 92-91 with six and a half left in the fourth quarter. And they ran the Jimmy, I think it was, I don't know who, it, my brain is broke. I think it was Oladipo. Jimmy Oladipo pick and roll to try and get white. And the Celtics would not give the switch. Smart went under the one screen. They re-screened. Smart was like, I'm just not getting screened. You're not screening me. Got over the screen, stayed in front of Jimmy Butler. How hard is it to get over a screen and stay in front of Jimmy Butler? Like ridiculously hard. And Marcus Smart did it. And Jimmy Butler was like, that's cool. Great defense. I'm just going to drive into you. When I get in the paint, I'm going to hit you with a little chicken wing. They're not going to call it. You're going to fall backward a little bit, and I'm going to hit this floater to put us back up three. That was a play that the Jimmy Butler who played games three, four, and five could not have made. And I said this on TV yesterday. Jimmy Butler in game five ran 13 pick and rolls. It's one of his lowest totals of the season. It's like one of his 10 or ten or 12 lowest totals of the season. They basically stopped using him as a ball handler in game five. He became a screener. The Heat scored zero points directly out of those Jimmy Butler pick and rolls in game five. Zero. And then he shows up and he does that and he scores 47 points. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. It's another Jimmy Butler masterpiece. How many of these 40 point masterpieces have there been in the playoffs between the bubble and here? It's like six, it's like five or six or seven now. Yeah, it was what his third 40 point effort of this playoffs. I mean, he's been easily, it was easy. It was forgettable in the context of the last three games. But you look at the, the entire postseason, Jimmy has been far and away the best player in this playoffs. And if, I mean, if you get him playing at that level, you're liable to, to win anywhere, anytime. So, you know, I think that's, that's probably the most encouraging thing besides home court for Miami is they, they look ahead to game seven. Um, and the Celtics just, 
I, I mean, I, it, it's tempting to say things like, oh, the Celtics can't stand prosperity. Every time you think they have momentum in these series, they lose. I mean, this was the game where Jimmy Butler just took it from him. And you can look you can look at the turnovers, and yeah, if the Celtics have 12 turnovers instead of 17, they win this game. They will win almost every game against Miami if they have 11 or 12 turnovers instead of 17 or 18. That's just reality. Jason Tatum had seven turnovers. That's too many. Jalen Brown had four and fouled out. He had a kind of a quiet. I think he had two points in the second half and 18 in the first half, so he faded a little bit. But the Heat took a lot of those turnovers. They, the Heat won this game. I didn't watch this game and think, oh, man, Boston just gagged that away at home. I thought a team that looked dead came into Boston behind an absolutely majestic performance and took this win. Is that, is that I, I, to me, this is more, I, we, I, I hate reducing it to a dichotomy, but I, this is more about Miami just winning the game. Yeah. I wanted to be more frustrated by the Celtics performance here. And I do think that they, they didn't come out with the requisite focus and, and energy needed for a closeout game. They should have expected Miami to, you know, come with this level of effort even after getting blown out the last couple of games. But, uh, you know, they were able to make up for it, get right back into the game. And then Miami kept, as you've said, answering over and over again. Now, if I'm Boston and want to feel reasonably optimistic going into game seven, I mean, number one, this team has shown that they can win crucial games on the road, the the Milwaukee game 6-1 most notably. Also, there is a slight trend. I just looked this up. When the road team wins game six to force a game seven, They've done slightly worse in game seven than you would expect based on the overall track record of teams winning game seven. So I, I don't know if that that's meaningful at all, but it's like 27 and 14 as opposed to uh, like 75% overall. And like you said, Boston, they just won a, a critical road game in Miami almost literally yesterday. They won game six in Milwaukee with their season on the line. They're going to have to win game seven in Miami with their with their season on the line and you know the one the one thing that I'll look for early in game 7 was the big second half adjustment tonight for Miami was on a lot of the times that Tatum gets Struce or Brown gets Struce were either sending a second defender or we're just going to load up in the middle of the floor to such a dramatic degree that if he drives, they're just going to be hands and arms everywhere right away, and he's not going to get to the rim, and he's either going to have to make a, a, a tough floater, the right kickout pass, and I thought Boston, I thought Boston got a little, I thought Boston Stars got a tiny bit too shot hungry at points in this game and missed kickout passes, just keep the machine moving, keep it, I know Marcus Smart was one of nine from three, I still got to trust him, and I, I, I would bet that we'll see a little bit more of that pressure early if Tatum and Brown get rolling against Miami's weaker guys. I mean, you have to assume that those are the clips that Ime is showing in the film session. This is the opportunity we have. And I mean, I, I think that probably harkens back to where Boston was at the beginning of this season before this turnaround. And, you know, a lot of that was shot making as well. They were getting better shots than uh, their, their shooting reflected. But you know, we also saw a, a greater degree over the course of the season of buy-in from Jalen and Jason into, you know, kind of that playing in that team concept that he wanted to bring this season. And I thought, you know, the Celtics adjusted to that pressure at, at some points in, in, in the moment. 
pretty well. There was one play where first first of all, if they're gonna if they're gonna double like that, I'd rather have Tatum have the ball than Brown. I trust him more despite his seven turnovers tonight. I trust his pull up shooting game more. I trust his passing a little bit more. Number two, when Tatum saw that help coming, there was one possession where he immediately hit I think Horford in the corner because the defense was loading away from him and Horford made a quick catch and go play. And there was another one where he just drove it so early that the double couldn't even get there. Tatum did and made some play out of it. So they, they know it's coming and they can adjust to it, but I'm sure, and I'm sure Spo will have other stuff. Maybe there's more zone. I, they, they've kind of went away from the zone cause Boston has been doing well against it. Maybe there's someone off the bench. We don't expect plays. I mean, it just seems like the series has kind of been reduced to on offense. We're just going to hunt the weakest defender there is on the floor. And Boston has pretty much, you know, Boston's defense has been, for the most part, very good. I thought they made some mistakes tonight. We can talk about that if you want. Uh, And number two, um, it's just turnovers, transition points, offensive rebounds. I mean, I I don't know that there's a lot of mystery left, but I'm sure there'll be something we don't expect. That's what's great about Game 7. I agree. I didn't feel like the Celtics defense was as sharp tonight. I mean, maybe that's me being overly affected by the shot making by Miami, but it also felt like the Heat were getting into the paint, kicking out, creating opportunities. And we we didn't see Boston suffocate them in the way that they they you know can do when they are playing their best defense. Yeah, I mean, there was that Lowry, Bam pick and roll in the first. It was mostly in the first half where Boston was doing stuff. I was like, this is not Boston-y. There was that Kyle Bam pick and roll where Robert Williams just did nothing. Like Marcus Smart expected him to drop and contain. And Kyle Lowry just like was like, oh, nobody's here. I'm just going to lay the ball up and in. There was that other play where I thought Smart got too cute trying to switch Robert Williams out of a pick and roll. He like ran all the way from the opposite side of the floor to drag Robert Williams out of a pick and roll. And they ended up kicking it over to his guy, I think, for a three. And it's like, dude, Rob, just let Robert Williams. Def- you're like, what are you doing? Where you know? And there were a couple, of, couple of you know, they're dropping back on defenses. Generally, worked. There were a few times where they ran into picks and and the Heat got good looks. I, I thought Boston made like four uncharacteristic mistakes in the first half that probably led to 10 Miami points. And if it, it sounds small, but if that's four Miami points instead of 10, you know, maybe the outcome, maybe the outcome is different. I thought second half, they were pretty sharp and Miami just made great shots. Yeah. And I mean, the other factor in games seven is just what, what Jimmy Butler do we get? I mean, this was an incredible workload to play 46 minutes, the entire second half, you know, given that he he is banged up at the very least can he do that two consecutive games i i think is the question i'm going to want to see and you know that's that's why we're all going to tune in on sunday this is one of those impossible things for us to really talk about because we're not within the team but this is boston's fourth conference finals in six seasons this is their best team i think of those four teams they beat the nets they beat the Bucks up 3-2 in this series. I, th- I just think they're a better team than Miami, and they have been a healthier team than Miami. They already feel internally like the bubble conference finals against Miami that they were the better team and let some of those fourth quarters get away. If they lose this game in this series, the level of regret in that organization is going to be really, really deep. Now, these, the core guys are all very young, so this is not like a Clippers circa 2017 situation where everyone's getting old and it feels like the moment has passed. The moment is clearly not passed. So I don't really know how to sort of digest all that, but I know that this one would, this one would be 
super, super, super painful for the Celtics. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's the imminent pressure of the clock ticking in the way that it was, like you said, for the Clippers or, you know, teams that have had high seeds and fallen short of the finals several years in a row, the conference finals in the case of the Clippers and, you know, the Jazz and some of these other teams. But it's, you know, Tim Bontemps wrote about this today. It's you don't know how many of these opportunities you're going to get. They're really good. They're mostly healthy probably healthier than Miami at the right point of the season. You, you can't let these slip away. Well, that Miami took it from them tonight. And, you know, it, it's, it's not, and the, you know, game three looms as another one where the Celtics just came out completely flat and a, a heat team with Jimmy Butler sitting out the second half opened up a big lead and then hung on for dear life late in the game. That's another one you look back on. Yeah. I mean, it, this one's going to be – the first two conference finals of this run were against the Cavs when they were clearly underdogs. It was kind of like this is fun and frisky and blah, blah. Then you had the bubble when it was like Kemba and Gordon Hayward and it's okay, we're we're ready post-Kyrie disaster the year before. We're ready. Didn't win. This is the one that feels like – even though Tatum's only 20, 24, I think he just turned 24. Like you said, the time is on their side. But this one feels like – this feels like a championship-ready team. Um and I, I, I think I don't know what you think about this. I think if they make the finals, I, I think the the Warriors will be favored over Miami. Clearly, if that ends up being the matchup, I think I, I don't know. The Warriors will have home court against either team. I I think I would Vegas install the Celtics as a slight favorite in that series. It, it's it's kind of like a pick 'em to me. I I was certainly you know leaning towards picking the the Celtics in six if they had won tonight. I I do think Vegas would probably still go Warriors just when you look at the magnitude of how much they were favored by going into the conference finals and you know how much relatively closer the East was. I mean I think Dallas is probably a weaker opponent than Miami, but still my my reading of the tea leaves is that Vegas considers the Warriors a slightly stronger team or at least they're enough of a public team that they get that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's it, it's a situation where they could reasonably be favored in the finals if they win this. So that's that's the stakes. Uh, Kevin Pelton, any anything we should look out for you this weekend or, or coming up on ESPN.com? You're always working on interesting stuff. Yeah, I got a couple of pieces coming out this weekend. Wrote about uh, Darvin Ham and a couple of uh, ideas for how he can maybe tweak some things with the Lakers next season after uh, Woj reported that hiring before tonight's game. And then Sunday, uh, a return of the mailbag looking back at who would have won the conference finals MVP the past 10 seasons if it had existed. Oh, that is really exciting. I can't wait to read that. Who would have won the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird trophies, respectively? Yeah, I love that we got 30 minutes and 40 seconds into a podcast, and we're like, oh, by the way, the Lakers hired a new coach. We'll talk about it some other time. (laughs) Kevin Pelton, uh, thank you for staying up. Not so late your time, pretty late my time, to talk about the first close game that it feels like we've had in about a month. And uh, buckle up, everyone. Game 7 is in about... I don't know, 44 hours or something like that on Sunday. Uh, Just a trip to the NBA Finals at stake. Good times. Kevin Pelton, thank you, sir. Thanks as always for having me. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, 
Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, the Golden State Warriors, after a two-year hiatus and about three calendar years since Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson suffered catastrophic injuries in back-to-back NBA Finals games, the Warriors, with the same three-man core and some interesting supplementary pieces we'll talk about, and the same coach and the same GM and the same culture and the same offense and relatively the same defense and some interesting young guys, the Warriors are back in the NBA Finals after after ushering the Dallas Mavericks out with a gentleman's sweep. And I wanted to step back and kind of put this in perspective because it's a rare thing that a team reaches the mountaintop, stays at the mountaintop, gets knocked off the mountaintop by a free agency departure, injury upon injury upon injury, and age. Steph's 34. There's some gray and there's a lot of gray in Draymond's goatee now. Like, they, these guys ain't young anymore. And it's not like the super-duper young guys are are helping that much. I mean, Moses Moody was big in the Dallas series. Kaminga's at his moments. James Wiseman, I, I, I believe, is still on the team and sitting on the bench during these games. The highest pick uh, that they've got. Um, and, and it's a rare thing for a team like that to get all the way back to the mountaintop three years later. And to help us chronicle that and everything, I wanted someone who was not just there from the beginning, but was there in Oakland before the beginning, before the beginning of the beginning, before it all, through it all. He's a columnist for The Athletic. He has written not one, but two best-selling books on this iteration of the Warriors and some of the key players. Marcus Thompson, I am so excited to talk to you. How are you? My man, it's a pleasure to be back. I appreciate it. Uh... You make me sound so old, bro. I'm not that old. No, I'm a old, little man. old. I'm a little old. We're old. <laughs> I'm I'm 44. I'm old. It's over. Me too. Me. Yeah, I, we're done. We're washed. It's it's a wrap. It's over, man. I my my wife told, said to me the other day, "Hey, we should go for a nice run outside the two of us. You know, we should go for a run." And I was like, "Honey, you know my stance on running." I'm retired. My knees and my shins a few years ago said, you're an elliptical man now or a bike man now. No more running for you. We're old. We're washed up. But the Warriors are not washed up, even if some of them are getting a little old in NBA terms. So I want to start with this question. You're around these guys all the time. You have gained the the trust 
and the confidence of some of the key, key, key figures on this team, and particularly the players, and that's the hardest. Star players is the hardest line to break trust-wise in the NBA. Since that 2019 Game 6, Clay goes down, Durant leaves. In those people, in any of the central people, did you ever hear doubt verbalized? Doubt like, hey, maybe... Maybe we're not ever going to get back here. I mean, maybe we'll be good, but like it was, the stage all to ourselves, the biggest stage, everyone's eyes on us. Hey, maybe we won't ever get back there. Maybe this really is it. Did you hear anyone ever express that kind of doubt? Not not so blatantly, but yeah, you you heard the doubt. Um, you could see it in the move to get D'Angelo Russell uh, because the other option was to just be completely empty-handed. Right, Katie leaves, and it's like, what do we do now? Uh, there, there were time, there were definitely conversations about looking forward, right? Like, hey, let's let's start preparing for life after Steph Curry, and do it right now. And you know, even while the superstars are saying, "Man, let's restock, let's retool," there was a sentiment to say. You know what? Let's rebuild. You know, uh, I remember Joe Lacob saying he didn't want to be like the Lakers where they won a championship and then spent six or seven years out of the playoffs. He didn't want to do that. So it, it was definitely there was definitely some backdoor uh, concerns. Remember, they, they missed on several draft picks before Jordan Poole was this. He was considered a miss. Uh, Jacob Evans is not even in the league anymore. Damian uh, uh, Jones, like. Jordan Bell. Jordan Bell, Alan Smilagich, right? So they, they Smilagich gets right? a mention. We're Smiley. four minutes and fifty-five seconds in, and Smiley is mentioned. We gotta hide Smiley. No one's gonna know Smiley exists. Smiley's I don't know. Where is Smiley now? I don't even know. I think he he might be in uh the G League still. I think he's still Okay, under- I don't I don't want to talk about Smiley. The Not point really. the point is there were some draft misses and and there was this tug of war of are we building for the future? Or are we building for the present? And Anthony Slater, your colleague, wrote a piece today about how Steph just sort of let the front office try to thread the needle. Didn't I think the phrase Anthony used was he didn't shake any tables about it. He didn't he didn't yell and scream about how we need more veterans. But that said, you know, Draymond last night in the postgame presser, the postgame awards celebration even said, you know, I I told I said before the season, and Bob hit back at me like I don't remember a team really pulling this off. And I think Steph had a couple, if I recall, had a couple press sessions where you could tell with a little smirk and a little glint in his eye that he had a little skepticism in him. Is that fair? Very fair. A lot of skepticism. Uh, you know, keep in mind, Steph had played the previous season. He played really an MVP season. Uh, and he's like out there with you know Kelly Oubre and Andrew Wiggins, you know, and guys who just they're good players, but they weren't good enough, right? He needed more. Nothing to make people stop shamelessly double and tripling him. So in Steph's mind, it's like, man, we got we got to get somebody, right? We got to get somebody who can kind of take this pressure off. So yeah, no, there there were there were major doubts. Even remember the. 15th roster spot when they had three choices it was leave it empty because the salary tax luxury tax bill is super high or sign avery bradley a veteran who's won before or take a shot on gary payton the second 
those veterans were in the Avery Bradley camp because they wanted somebody who was ready right now to help them win right now. That's what they needed. So the doubt was there. The skepticism was there. They they were they were trying to convince Bradley Bill to jump ship. They were trying to get see kick the tires on Damian Lillard to see if they could get somebody to come. Uh, so the skepticism was no doubt there. I, I think it kind of ended though when it was when Gary Payton II like kind of obviously won the fifteenth roster spot. And so that's where you kind of got to like, all right, let's let let's let the front office cook, right? But no question, it was it was there all off season. It was there during the contract negotiations where you're wondering what's the direction of the Warriors? Like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to win? Are they trying to build for the future? The skepticism was definitely there before the season began. What was the scene like last night in person? Because obviously I could watch it on TV. I see the joy. I see the elation. I hear the speeches afterwards. But I wonder if there were there's any moment that you had that you saw behind in, in the locker room, any conversation that you had, any person that you saw that just sort of encapsulated, this is a new kind of triumph for them, a new kind of win, a new kind of joy. Is there any, any moment you'll take with you of, man, it wasn't a guarantee we'd ever get back here and now we're here? Well, first off, don't get me started on the access issues because. <laughs> oh, that's right. Locker room. I can't believe there's, I said locker, no locker room. What was room. I thinking? No, we're stuck in a podium in an interview room with 50 reporters asking the same questions. But, you know, the reporter and me wouldn't settle for that. So there there were some moments. Uh, funny enough, one of them was with Jordan Poole, uh, who was on the, on the court on the phone with his mom. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's. He's basically celebrating the moment. Uh, and that's where it was like, wow, what what is old hat around here? There's a lot of dudes on the team who's never been through this before, right? There's a lot of newness. It was a freshness. It reminded me of 2015 when they first went to the finals, right? It was like he kind of embodied what it used to feel like. But from Draymond and from Steph and from Clay, Clay was emotional, right? Clay he felt every bit of it, you know, and he's the one who had been gone for two years. He's kind of the reason they weren't in the playoff scene because they didn't have him. And you could you could see the emotion of it. This was you could tell they were they were pumping their brakes because there's still another series. But this they this was the most I told you so vibe I got from them, right? This was the most uh y'all counted us out and we told you we'd be back. Uh, and Steph doesn't get close to saying that, right? But he's like, he said it last year, that you go, you're going to see us this time. So, like, talking to Andre, I had a good conversation with Andre Iguodala, and he's just, you know, he's saying this is why he came. He's not even playing, but he's so actively engaged. They didn't – the fact that they pulled this off, they know it was one of the great challenges, right? I mean, they're playing Moses Moody, and Jonathan Kamiga in the Western Conference Finals. Like, this is this is not how they normally do this. So you could definitely sense some relief. But they were – I think they're going to save the good stuff for if they win a championship. Well, and, and it's going to be tough because – look, if, if, if Miami somehow pulls this off, which I don't think they will, we're recording this at 2.30 Eastern on Friday, so about six hours before tip um, of, of Game 6 tonight. I'll be very surprised if Miami wins tonight. If Miami does gut through this, I think the Warriors will be pretty sizable favorites in the finals. If it's Boston, I would bet Vegas puts Boston as their early favorite in the finals, or it's pretty even money because only because the Warriors will have home court advantage on top of the fact that the Warriors are awesome. But it's going to be a challenge. You mentioned Clay. 
I want to talk about Clay. I've been like weird. I've been really sort of like kind of shocked about the Clay discourse this season because there's been so much focus on he's not the same guy. Like at the beginning, he's like he's forcing it. He's taking bad shots. You know, oh his off ball defense is still not very good. He got beat for a couple rebounds. I'm like, yo, this guy in the playoffs is averaging 19 and a half points know, a game. Right? <laughs> he's shooting 46 percent overall. 40% on threes. 40% on threes. Defenses still treat him like a five-alarm fire. I mean, you look at some Warriors possessions where he's not involved at all. He'll be in the deep, deep corner, and Dorian Finney-Smith will be, like, pretty much stepping on his feet. And just that alone is so valuable. He gives them a little mid-range dimension that they don't have as much when he's not there. Is obviously his cutting, his ball movement, his split actions. I think all things considered... This is like an A plus plus season from Clay, considering what he just went through, and you know I think his defense on the ball against Luca was pretty solid when yeah. he got switched onto him. I, I think I I think I, I don't have any consternation at all about anything Clay did this year. I think it's an A plus plus. Yeah, I, I think people can get lost in the fact that this dude went through two major leg injuries and. But part of it is Clay, right? Clay did come back like, yo, I'm Clay still. I'm, he's, but what else would you want, though? That's it's what so you want. Clay. It's very Clay, right? He's asking to guard the star point guards again, right? He's he like, dunked in the first game. I mean, you were you were certainly in the arena for that. He did, he Dude, did. I jumped out of my chair. It was against the Cavs, and he dunked in the first game pretty early. And I was like, damn, that is Savage. That's an underrated, iconic yes. moment from this season. Because no, you expected some threes and some mid-rangers and some fourth shots. I did not expect Clay to, Clay didn't dunk much pre-injury. No, that to me, that was kind of the embodiment of how Clay attacked this. And and he needed to be this way to get here. And it was never realistic to expect the same clay from before, right? That just wasn't realistic, even from him, from anybody. But what you, I think you made the, the most critical point out of all of this. These dudes' value is in the postseason. Like, that's when it matters. Like, the regular season is cool. They'll do their thing over the course of, you know, a season. They will make out on top generally. But the real greatness of Clay, of Draymond, of Steph, is that in the playoffs they come through. Uh, they they become tough to beat. And even like when Clay has a bad game, when you need him, he's there. When Steph is five for fourteen or five for seventeen, whatever he is, Clay is there. To me, that's the kind of the defining legacy. And maybe that's what this is from now on, right? Maybe he's never the forty three percent three point shooter. Maybe he's never the lockdown defender again. But with these young guys they have, if he could just be this, a guy who p- teams are terrified that he just might drop 30 in the quarter. It's not out of the realm of possibility, right? Like He just scored 32 <laughs> to put the Mavericks away. Yes, I mean, and some of those shots, like he, he's, he's still got that fading where he's in the air and he's drifting, but the shot is still dead eye. To me, that's kind of a – a new element. It's not, you know, Clay was so textbookly perfect with his shot. Everything was balanced and, and, and elbow and everything was like just how you teach it. But now he's got this little drift, but it still is dead eye. To me, he's terrifying for opposing teams. And if he's willing to get out there and play D, he was good on Brunson. He's not the chase you around the perimeter defensive player now. Now he's the, 
I'm going to get inside and be the small guy who can play up a level, right? Because he's got some girth and he's got some strength to him. I, mean, I think Clay's been magical. Uh, it's, it's just uh, like watching him suffer. Like he was literally suffering, Zach. He was struggling. He's on the bench in front of 20,000 people crying because he can't play. So for him to go from that to here, uh, it, it's, it's, it's Disney-esque, I think. I, I, I feel like it should be more appreciated even though he did have times where he struggled, but I just feel like that was baked into what he was doing. Of course. Well, I mean, so so let's let's talk about the season and the idea that nobody believed in them, etc. So I was super high on them before the season. I said they had a final ceiling uh, for sure. I'm, I said I don't. I'm not sure I'll pick them to make the finals yeah. at that point in September, October. But I I like the team. And the reason there were always two things as the Warriors, as we knew them, fell apart. There were two things that stuck in my head. Number one was 2019 playoffs when they won two games against the Rockets without Durant and they swept the Blazers without Durant. And it was like, all right, we can still just be the old Warriors and Steph plus Clay plus Draymond and system players around them. That works because the way they play is so unique and so hard to defend. And, of course, that all starts with Steph. He's the engine. He's the fulcrum. He's the electrical current powering the machine. He's everything. He is the the defining force through which everything else emanates in the entire organization. And then when they finished last season 15-5, and five, yeah, it was so easy to throw that away. It's just all oh, the NBA, late season garbage, all this stuff. But Wiseman hurt. Oubre hurt and then demoted. And it was... All right, who understands how to play with Steph? Yes. Juan Toscano Anderson, come on in. Like, whoever else, right. come on in. And all of a sudden, they started winning again. And that, I put a huge amount of stock into that. Now, they still needed some ifs to go right. If number one was Clay, check. If number two was Wiggins, check. And if number three was someone else has got a pop and pool popped big time. And I want to go back to Wiggins and Russell and what you just said, because I was rereading some of your stuff from when KD left, and I had forgotten about this, and I wonder if you could retell it for people. You were the only one to have this story, as far as I know, um, about Steph flying back from China to try to greet Durant, not necessarily to convince – this is the summer of 2019 when Durant leaves – not to, like, plead with him to stay – but but for reasons now that, that you can tell, and then we'll use that as a way to get into that that offseason and, and Wiggins and all that. What tell people, remind people about that flight. So Kevin Durant was making a decision. He was expected to decide. And, you know, Steph is with uh, doing his Under Armour trip and his Asia tour, and he comes back to he's gotta essentially go through Baltimore. So he's like, let's go see Kevin Durant. And I don't think anybody knew his decision yet. But Steph just wanted to have a conversation with him. Whatever whatever Kevin Durant was going to decide, he wanted to be there and make sure he talked to him. And I don't. I think he knew Kevin was gone. A lot of people knew Kevin was gone. But he also understood the significance of the move Kevin made. He came there for Steph. He came to play with Stephen Curry. And so Steph felt like that's exactly how it should end. It began with them like kind of locking eyes and even in the Hamptons they were all there and Kevin's question was but does Steph want me here 
Like, it's all good for everybody else, but the Steph want me here. And they had to come to that agreement. So Steph felt like it was best to end with that agreement. And I do think there's a part of them that was like, hey, man, maybe you get Steph in the room with him. Maybe he could change his mind. But while he's flying there, they get the news that he he's, he chose Brooklyn. Uh, so the, it what ended up being who knows what it could be was like one final moment where they were teammates and they were just getting it together to kick it. He's, he's, you know, recovered from his, his Achilles injury. They got to talk about it. It was closure for a relationship that was about as high and low as you could get in the NBA, right? About as, as gratifying and tumultuous as it can be. But I do feel like they, they were the, they were the quintessential stars, man. They were it. They're, they're the elite of the elites who bonded. And they had one more. I, I thought it was important. It was important for Steph to be able to move on. It was important for it for it not to be, I guess, so much animosity. Obviously, you know, there's still a, a bunch of, you know, drama from that that never goes away. But that was a pretty significant moment for both of them to to essentially close it out as the superstars. And it kind of set the words up. I, I do. I, I believe one thousand percent, Zach, that that was Steph kind of turning the page. Like, all right, I got this done. Now we can move on to rebuilding this thing. And that chapter is closed. And he did it face-to-face. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge, and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Then they turned Durant's departure into a sign-and-trade for D'Angelo Russell, stealing D'Angelo Russell out of the clutches of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Off the helicopter. The helicopter. He's on the helicopter with Timberwolves officials. Was Towns on the helicopter? I can't remember. There was some some airborne courting going on by the Minnesota Timberwolves that was cut short. And and one of the reasons they swiped D'Angelo Russell was they knew at least one team, Minnesota, was desperate to get him. And if it goes bust, well, we can probably move him for something. They had two paths to choose from in that moment. Number one, let Durant walk for nothing. Keep Iguodala, who they had to trade in path B, which we'll talk about. Yep. Keep keep the picks that they ended up trading in both the Durant deal and the Iguodala deal. Keep the mid-level exception. Keep all the picks, all the flexibility. I mean, not much flexibility, but keep all your assets anyway and move forward. Path B was D'Angelo Russell. And... It involved trading a protected first to the Nets, which turned into a second, and a very, very lightly protected first to Memphis, along with Iguodala, who, of course, would famously never play for Memphis because they had to duck under the hard cap. So 
the Russell path involved forfeiting a couple picks and taking on a max contract attached to a player who plainly was not worth a max contract. And I wrote at the time, the first path was probably the safer path, the non-Russell path. Yeah, yeah. But, but, because I was never a Russell guy, but I understood why they took the Russell path because, A, the picks that they gave up, one ended up being a second-round pick, who cares? Those picks were probably never going to turn into players who would be ready to help Steph, Clay, and Draymond in time for them to still be championship-level players. And number two, Clay was hurt, and they had no other real way of getting like a player between age 24 and 28 who might end up being able to bridge the gap. They had no other vehicle to do that other than a miracle in the draft or trading Clay or Draymond, which they're not going to do. And so they took a shot. And they took a gamble, a calculated gamble, that if Russell doesn't work out, and I don't think it's like spoiler alert to say now, they were not super optimistic that Russell was going to work out. <laughs> Fact. We can flip him for something. And they flipped him for Wiggins in a deal I absolutely loved at the time. But I did not think it was going to turn out like this. Andrew Wiggins has been no. everything they could have hoped he would be and more in this playoff run. What do you remember from that sort of series of transactions, in particular the buildup of the Russell for Wiggins trade that happened on deadline day? Well, first I remember like saying, why are you doing this, right? Because I really wanted to understand. And I, the sentiment was, like you said, keep Iguodala – Right, keep the picks, keep the mid level because making this move hard capped them. Uh, so the the mid level was out. Like to me, that that was a path. But I remember having this conversation, and it's like you got to keep the salary slot. It's the salary slot. It's a twenty seven million dollar salary slot that you could fit one player in if you get lucky, two players in if you find two good talents. But you just they had no way of getting a $27 million salary slot again. Not with Steph making $50 million, right? And Clay making 40 and Draymond Woo! making 25, right? So it's either, like you said, get rid of one of them, which wasn't happening. And they wanted to keep that salary slot. And I think it's important to note the draft had not hit. So it just hadn't. They 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 struck it, they swung and missed multiple times, especially later in the draft, too, right? They weren't getting a top tier pick uh, with any of those. So I do think their failures in the draft and the fact, interesting. the fact that there's no other way to get a salary slot made them take it. The funny part was while they couldn't say it, Zach. So initially it was like the, we want D campaign. It was like, Oh no. Oh yeah. No, it's going to be a great fit. He yes. can play off the ball. You know, him, oh, Steph, him and Clay, Steph, we'll figure it out when Clay comes back. We'll fit a three guards. I'm sure we'll We're not Clay getting them to trade him. No, we like d yeah, that, that was the funny part through the whole thing. And, you know, d was such a explosive. I think he dropped 50 a couple times where it's like, there's a universe in this liminal space they're in where it makes sense from old Monte Ellis Warriors perspective, where it's like, look, just be entertaining, get buckets, try to make the playoffs. And the bar is just significantly lower. Uh, but it just it, it it just couldn't work. Like it was a drastic failure, mostly because D'Lo just had a lot to learn about winning. And, he, you know, I even talked to him and he was just he one of the things that jumped out to him. He was like, man, I got to get better conditioning. That's one thing I learned. Stuff like conditioning, trying on defense, right? Passing the ball. Like, that's the Warriors' way. 
and he just didn't like it just did not work at all uh so badly that Draymond was just kind of checked out <laughs> he was he was done and that was pretty much it so they flipped for Wiggins who clearly has worked out but at the time I was just I was even thinking like all right this is this is a good fit but this also might be something to flip right you get Wiggins to you know you shine him up a little bit put a little bit of that Warriors glow on him right and and now you got 33 million dollars to flip and I and I can tell you for sure the people around Wiggins were worried about that very thing and wanted some I mean no one can ever give you assurances really in this league but wanted some indication from the Warriors that no no they actually like yeah. Andrew Wiggins yeah. the basketball player and they got it oh and they and they liked him too like I can attest to this I wasn't a Wiggins fan I'd watched Minnesota for years Wiggins was super talented and all of the stuff that you hear about Wiggins it jumped off the screen like he he didn't try on defense he took a lot of bad shots he just didn't play a winning brand of basketball and you know what stripes just don't change that often in the NBA <laughs> Not after five or six years, right? You just are who you are. So I didn't think it was a great deal. D'Lo was so not – to me, I felt like they they should have fleeced Minnesota for two picks, right? That's what I was thinking. But I remember having uh, these conversations. They, 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 they might have tried. They might have <laughs> no, tried. No question. No question. I mean, it turned out to be an, an enormous trade with Wiggins' success and the fact that they got Jonathan Kaminga out of it. But – I just remember, like, literally arguing with Joe Lacob. Like, we're in Phoenix locker room, we're debating this, and I'm like, "Yo, Wiggins is not as good as you think he is." Like, and they're like, "No, we love Wiggins. He's gonna be the perfect player for us." And man, I, I literally had to write a mea culpa because he turned out to be, <laughs> he turned out to be exactly what they said. I, you know, the, the crazy part about it, Zach, it was what months after. The D-Lo PR plan, like it was months after they tried to sell us that, hey, D'Angelo Russell is going to be a perfect fit. So then you fast forward, and like, Andrew Wiggins is going to be perfect. Like, he fits us so well. So I was like, whatever, man. This is still Andrew Wiggins. He's a good player who's always been, you know, a bit disappointed. But, man, the power of Stephen Curry and, and the tone he sets and Draymond's, like, fire defensively and his ability to just quarterback people – into the right position and 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 credit to Wiggins man he I, I think Wiggins sensed that his reputation like in the way he played basketball was never worthy of him and this was his chance to change it like he, this dude committed to defense from the beginning and you start looking like hey yo Wiggins know how to play defense where was this in Minnesota <laughs> right but you know then you fast forward two years he's in the playoffs and he's a lead rebounder like, what the hell? Like, he's slashing, right? <laughs> he's basically giving up. I asked him, I was like, yo, who's the best mid-range shooter, right? This is Wiggins, man. Wiggins is the king of the mid-range. This is his favorite shot, the step back long two. And he's like, no, it's out of Porter. I'm giving up on the mid-range. He, he has, though. If you yeah, look at the numbers, absolutely he, he, he has. the long twos are gone absolutely for the most part. Absolutely he has. And when he takes them, when he takes them now, like there was a play last night in, um, in game five where – the Warriors ran a bunch of Warriors-y stuff. And this is what's so demoralizing about the Warriors is they run you through a gauntlet for 15 seconds of, of handoffs and screens and Steph relocating and split cuts. And you, and you nail all of it, right? You're switching. You got it done. You got it done. There are 15 seconds of great defense. 
And then it just keeps going. And it just takes one second of not even bad defense, just like not great defense. Yeah. And it's a layup. And you're like, well, God damn, man. We just like did that for 15 seconds. We did that. Shit and we failed anyway. So anyway, they had a couple of possessions like that where Dallas nails all that stuff. And there was one where Draymond got got it near the rim and they swarmed him and he dropped it off to Wiggins who hit this beautiful fadeaway bank shot from like 12 feet. And there was another one when they kicked it to Wiggins on the left wing. Didn't really have an advantage because the Mavs had defended so well. And he drove it and kind of hit like a six-foot layup slash floater. And when you combine that with the defense, that's like – that's – just a, a guy who can take a possession that's not going anywhere yeah. and almost by himself get something okay out of it. It's a beautiful mix of old warriors and an ingredient that they didn't really have when Durant was not there. And I thought last night between there was just so much sort of classic warrior stuff, even in last night's game, Draymond running a fast break, hitting clay for a three. It felt like I was in 2014 again, even <laughs> Steph, Steph going for the kill shot. Remember, he had like a 33-footer that he chucked up just to kind of demoralize the yeah, Mavs yeah, late in the game, yeah. and he missed it. And then with two minutes left, Marcus, uh, Steph misses a floater. They're up like 13 with two minutes left. Misses a floater. Wiggins gets the offensive rebound, kicks it to Steph. The right play is just waste 14 yeah, more yeah, seconds. Yeah. It's just like, yo, <laughs> screw all that. Corner three, good night. Bring in the garbage time lineup. I love it. About the previous play. Like, he shot the three so he could complain to the ref. Like, dude, that was foul on the last one. No question, right? You dribble that to the top, you eat more clock. No, that's not That's not how they work. And you know what else about Wiggins? Uh, when he needs to pull out the step back mid-range, he can. Yeah. And he's hit a few. So it's it's like a, you know, in case of emergency, we're glass. And they need that sometimes. They need a good mid-range shooter, and he's one of them. I, I, I can't believe they're in the finals, dude, with Andrew Wiggins. Like, I, I can't well, believe it. It's, you you said an important name um, before, and it was Monte Ellis. Yes. This era begins – it begins with the drafting of Steph Curry, and then he has all the ankle issues and all that. But Monte Ellis for Andrew Bogut Huge. set a tone for the organization that all of this cool, you know, offense explosion over the years from run TMC till now, like we got places, we got places, run TMC got places, second yep. round of the playoffs, all that. Uh, we believe got places. It didn't get us to an amazing place. We need defense. And if it's Warriors Celtics in the finals, it's the top two defenses in the league. Yeah. If it's Warriors Heat, it's number two and number four. Yeah. And it's just a reminder that this thing was built on defense almost from the start, which you don't think of Steph as is a Steph team as a defense team, but the Warriors have been a good defensive team. And I thought this series was a reminder of that in two ways. Number one, where Phoenix and to, to a lesser extent Utah, but especially Phoenix, when Dallas went five out. Phoenix tried to defend everybody one-on-one. -on -one. They said, we're not helping in the paint and at the rim unless we absolutely have to because we're so scared of giving up open threes. The Warriors were like, oh, we'll help. When you get into the paint, you're going to see another body. And do you know why? Because we have faith in everybody to nail the rotations yep. on time at full speed. And we are not going to just give up tons and tons of wide open threes. And they were right. And the other thing about that is who is at the top of those plays time and time again? Steph Curry. Hedging and recovering, not getting switched, 
not getting taken out of a play. It was a good enough defensive performance against an offense that really causes a lot of problems. And a reminder that with Draymond Green back there, with Looney, with Wiggins, with going away from the pool party to what I've called like the mid-sized sedan lineups with like, you know, Draymond <laughs> plus Porter plus Auto Wiggins. Porter, Draymond, baby, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, um, th- those kind of things. Like, this is a good defensive team, and I thought it was, like, a, a kind of a reminder. Like, yeah, that's as much of, of the foundation of this last 10 years as anything else. I think the Bogut part is underrated, as a matter of fact. Uh, and when you think about when this when this thing turned, it was Andrew Bogut, right? What What's Draymond's specialty? He's great at all kinds of defensive setups, but he might be the best help defender of all time. Andrew Bogut was his vet on defense. Andrew Bogut is the was the quarterback behind the defense, pointing them out. He was the one when Clay is being the ball hawk on the guard, saying, "Hey man, you can go all out. You can pressure him fully. You can get into him because you got Bogut back there." And the other guy, Andre Iguodala, right? The defense mindset and acumen and IQ, like that is the beginning of the Warriors. I remember 2015 where it was like, remember Charles Barkley's like, jump shoot teams don't win, jump shoot teams don't win. Like, no, this is a defensive team. Like, the reason they're a champion is because they can play defense. And even if you just watch Steph over the years, right, this is where Luka is, this is where John Morant is, this is where James Harden ever got to, Steph over the years, because of that early indoctrination, because that's what they told him, if you play defense, you win. And he started winning when they started playing defense. He believes that you have to play defense. So oh, every year, Steph gets better at defense. Every year. He's out there, ISO, like going all out. Remember 2018, it was James Hart. It was like, I'm holding my own. I'm, I'm willing. You know, they got this thing with the Warriors. They're like, you got to stick your nose in it. You have to stick your nose in it. It doesn't matter if you get beat. If you have to get humiliated every time down to help the defense, then that's the defensive game plan, and you got to be willing to do that. And he does it. He does it in a way superstars don't. And it's because, like you said, they got Bogut. They got Andre Iguodala. They had 1990s Mark Jackson talking about it every possession. Pack the paint, right? Don't let – no layups. Close out on threes, and, and we're going to play defense. And somehow it has become a part of their DNA. Now all this complex stuff where they're running in and out of zones, boxing ones, matchups, 3-2, they're doing it on the fly. We're talking about Steph Clay, <laughs> Jordan Poole even. I mean, he's barbecue chicken, but he's running the sets, right? Like, you know, he's out here, and, and Moses Moody is rookies. It's, it's 1,000% part of the culture. And I don't think Bogut actually gets enough credit for that because – that that Denver series, that San Antonio series, when he was playing a lot, I, I know when they won a championship, they started going small, but he was part of that foundation, and a lot of what Draymond does was born from Bogut being back there showing you how to quarterback a defense, and this dude has become one of the great all-time defenders, especially help side, especially pointing people out, right, and, and telling everybody where to go, and and. and setting you know reading the defense to set a guy up like i'm gonna make him think he's open i want luca he did a play last night where it's like i want to hedge this way because i want luca to spin and think he's free and then i'm gonna close and block the shot 
and he's setting it up while it happens. Like all that stuff starts from a defense, yeah, and that's Dr- why Draymond good. Draymond is so good and so smart that he breaks the rules on defense because Regularly. he can. Yeah. He gives <laughs> he gives you space you're not supposed to give people. He angles his feet in ways that you're taught not to do because he's one step ahead of everybody else. I'm glad you mentioned that Spurs series in 2013. It's such an underrated landmark event in this whole thing because it would look so they beat Denver that year in the first round. They were the sixth seed. Denver was the third seed. But like Denver was injured. Denver had a history under George Carl. Like they always lost in the first round. It wasn't a shocker. The Spurs were the Spurs. Yeah. They ended up making the finals that year. And that series, although the Warriors lost it 4 2, I've talked about it many times. They were very close to being up 2 0. Yep. Steph was going crazy. Against their against Tim Duncan's drop back defense, and it was the series that sort of crystallized for me watching it. Like, oh, this dude's a problem, and he's a problem. Right. Like all this stuff that's happened in the regular season, that's like league pass darling, this and that. This is the Spurs in the playoffs, and the Spurs are like, uh, what? What are we? What are we supposed to do against this? We never seen this before. Um, and I want to close by talking about Steph because Kendrick Perkins. I, I'm dreading the. I'm dreading what is about to be two weeks of does Steph need a finals MVP to cement his legacy talk because this is what we do in the media. I I voted for LeBron the first year they won the title, even though the Cavs lost. And I've said many times, had I voted a warrior, I would have voted for Steph. Uh, I don't think Andre Iguodala, I love Andre. I think that should have been Steph's finals MVP. It wasn't whatever. But Kendrick Perkins the other day on TV said, if Steph wins the title, if the Warriors win the title, and Steph wins the finals MVP, I'm putting him above Magic Johnson as the greatest point guard of all time. And everybody went bananas. Like, that's crazy talk. Magic Johnson is Magic Johnson. Five-time champion, three-time MVP, three-time finals MVP, nine times first-team All-NBA. And I, I dug into it a little bit. I looked at some numbers. I looked at, just sort of felt out the history of the game. I don't think it's crazy to say that. I don't know that I would put him above Magic just because Magic at 6'9 could lord over the game in a way Steph never could. He's got 10,000-plus assists. He's top five assists all time. Steph is around 5,300. We'll talk about how assists will never do Steph justice because he just gets assists without touching the ball, uh, basically, unrecorded assists. (laughs) Not even hockey assists. Just like there's got to be – they're just Steph assists. Doesn't touch the ball, and and he's the whole reason somebody else scores. Um, But – I don't I don't think I don't think it's ridiculous to say that the point the best point guard ever debate is going to be Magic and Steph. I think Steph is going to finish above if he's not already above Isaiah Thomas. I know that's sacrilege to guys our age. Above Chris right. Paul, above John Stockton, <laughs> above Oscar Robertson. So right now, Steph has 20,000 points and 5400 assists on 47% shooting and 43% from 3, which is obviously he's the greatest shooter of all time. We know that. I factored conservatively. I said, let's give him four more years, 60 games a year, 23 a game, five assists a game. Yeah, that's Okay, so that's 60 a year and 23 overall. So like one this year he averaged 25 and a half, right? So I just gave him 23. You do that for four more years. He has 26,000 points, which would be 23rd, 20th, 19th, somewhere around there, depending on the specifics all time. And 67, 6,600 assists, which is top 25. 
four championships if we're if we're just sort of projecting. I'm not saying they're going to win this year, but that's the thought exercise. That's why they'll get one. Yeah, yeah. And 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 maybe a Finals MVP. He's already an eight-time All-Star, eight-time All-NBA, only four-time First Team, but two-time MVP. Like, here are the, here's the list of people who have twenty-five thousand points and six thousand assists for their career. Here's the whole list: LeBron James, Oscar Robertson, Kobe Bryant, Jerry West, John Havlicek. That's the whole list of the twenty-five thousand points, six thousand assists club. Like, this is. The dialogue about Steph tends to be, well, he revolutionized the game. We have to give him extra points for that. He's not going to need any extra points to be <laughs> in that in that debate of, right. I don't, I'm not going to put a number top 10, top 12, but I do think Stockton, Isaiah, Oscar Robertson, Chris Paul, Steve Nash, name it. I'm sure I'm forgetting some someone in the, uh, in the point guard debate. I think it's just going to be Magic and Steph above everybody else. I, I agree with you, and you're right. Like, our, our demographic, like, there's a... There's just like this adorning for Magic Johnson, right? There's a bit of oh, Magic. Look, Magic right? helped save the NBA. Absolutely, he's six nine. He might be the best passer of all time. Like, there's no I, that one. I don't but like Isaiah Thomas. I lo- look. I feared Isaiah Thomas growing up. I feared that team. You know how many times Isaiah Thomas finished in the top four of MVP voting? Zero. Zero times. <laughs> his, his highest MVP finish was yeah. fifth. Like, it's just Steph has won no two MVPs. Like, it's just I just don't. Isaiah was a better defender, more physical. I just really, I think at the end of Steph's career, I just don't think it's really going to be arguable. I, I I agree. I think we're already there as far as like Steph and Magic. The the part that gets a little bit lost, and and I think we should listen to the coaches in this. And you've heard Jason Kidd say it. You've heard Tyron Lue say it. They just have dedicated so them their defense to taking this guy away. It's it's a degree of difficulty that is added to the layer where I'm, you just don't do that with point guards. It's just you don't do that with six three point guards. Where Tyron Lewis said, "I don't care who is on the court, I'm taking Steph Curry away." I mean, we watched Nick Nurse go all out in the finals trying to eliminate Steph Curry. So to me, you start adding that caveat, and then you add the fact that I mean, what the first three years of Steph's career. Don't even really like count this package, right? He was like in a different era. He was trying to be a point guard. He was trying to prove he could run an offense in a, in a different style. So he had to kind of change the game in order to get to this. I, you know, you start talking about one of the things that made Magic super, superb was the way he just, like he was the ultimate face of a franchise, right? Like, that that intangible element, like the whole, there's obviously now shows about it, like about the the aura of Magic Johnson, like that stuff, a modern day creation of that, like all of these little caveats, all of these components, how people run to play with stuff, right? Like people are like, they're lining up to come play with stuff. You start looking at it and then they get better because of it, right? Their games evolve because of the way he plays, invites you to to try basketball a different way. Uh, like so to me you start adding all those caveats the leadership the pressure of being the face the uh the constant relentless like double they they guard they guard Steph like MJ right they guard Steph like you know like Kobe it's like we 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 can't let this dude beat us and somehow he still tends to do it I I feel like this is this is inevitable right Uh, barring some major injury 
it's inevitable. He get another time. I don't know. I don't know about finals MVPs that much. <laughs> like, I don't even know when this became like this barometer of greatness. Like, but we know when we watch it. I, I do feel like Steph won't be ever fully appreciated until he's done. Right. And I, I said yesterday on NBA Today, I think he's going to have one of those careers that yeah, ages absolutely. really, really well. That ten or twenty years from now, we'll look back and say, "Holy smokes, what a, what an experience that was." Um, just like we do with magic. (laughs) Well, I think, I think you inadvertently though, made the argument for why it's going to be hard to put him above magic or why, and why it's going to be hard for uh, certain fans of a certain age to put him above magic because you you use the phrase, they, they did all this stuff to take away a six, three point guard. I think the flip side would be the taller guys. You you just can't take away. away. There's nothing you can do to take him away. I think that matters. I, I think that's part of, the 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 rubric like like you can do some things to take stuff away he's six foot three there's a reason isaiah ain't up there right there's a reason there's a limit on it basketball is a game that favors height like it matters magic was an anomaly because he was a six nine point guard like you're watching like watching luca like it matters that he's six foot seven he can get that shot off like that's a that actually matters. Kevin Durant is Kevin Durant because he can get the shot off whatever he wants. So I do think you got to consider the fact that there is a plan for Steph. Like you can overwhelm him physically, but I also think that that points out it's a, it's a credit to that. He's able to do this. Like somehow or another, he's been able to figure it out. Like now they're taking away his threes and he's driving. He's getting to the free throw line more. He's, He's become this more complete player playing defense and and being more vocal as a leader. Like the dude just wins. So to me, he's in that magic ilk because magic was about winning, winning brilliantly, like winning entertainingly, right? Winning attractively, but winning. And that's what in the end Steph's legacy would be about. I don't, I, I think we will, we will all say it's all said and done. If he makes a 30 foot three, if he plays defense, if he drives the lane and wins, either way, I think he'll be fine. If he gets finals MVPs for all of his teammates and wins the title, I think he'll be fine. And I think that's that's the testament to him. To me, that is very Magic Johnson-esque, right? That's literally the legacy of Magic Johnson. And I, I see ultimate compliment. We got to remember this too, right? This is another part of it, Zach. He just basically dropped out of the sky in 2014 nationally right this wasn't the phenom that magic was right we like for him to come out of nowhere and do this right like you we're talking about the last nine years of a 12-year career so like to me there was a point where i remember i'll never forget the story where steph was drafted and remember you know they was going through the pre-draft and steve kerr was the general manager of the phoenix suns and Sonya Curry, his mom is asking Steve Kerr, do you think he'll make it in the NBA? <laughs> like you, she was you like, think- yeah, we might be trying to trade for yeah, him right, right now. No, no. He's like, man, your son's going to be good, right? So, like, to me, the un- uniqueness of his story, whatever place he ends up, this dude will have carved a really unique uh, space in the NBA that will never be forgotten, that will be a part of lore. And... 
that's just incredible all its own. I'm with you. I'm, you know, magic, man. Come on, man. What? I was like 13 years old. Watching. So I, I feel it. I feel why people yeah. feel that way about Steph. I understand it. Dude is incredible. And like, we'll be talking about this in the end, but to me, magic is the only bar left for him to clear as a point guard. And I can hear people outside the Bay and what has become the Warriors national fan base saying, why are we, they haven't won anything yet. Why are we celebrating this? Why? First of all, let's step back. Number one, making the finals is, is a really huge hard. deal. Really, really hard for any LeBron team. went making eight the, times, bro. Like that's, we're not going to yeah, No, it, that. it does make you appreciate like yes. the final streak of, of LeBron even more. <laughs> but making the finals is really hard. Making the finals in this, a finals run of this nature after falling back and coming back is very rare. And, and like, I, I've already heard people say, why are you talking about the Warriors so much? Why is there so much sort of Warriors? Well, okay, who do you, you, what do you want me to talk about right now? The, the Rockets? I mean, the Warriors are in the NBA yeah, Finals. Right. They've, been, they've been at the top or near the top of the NBA for a decade. It's an incredibly rare accomplishment in a league where we see teams have these boom and bust runs where you're contending and then all of a sudden you're in the lottery. Like, of course we should be talking about the Warriors. And, of course, they haven't won the title yet. I just went through saying I bet Vegas and Saul's Boston – as the favorite, yeah. if Boston wraps it up against Miami, uh, it's going to be either. I, I think the Warriors, if Miami is in this kind of health, I think that's a tough matchup for Miami. But I think this is a really tough battle if it, if it ends up being Boston instead for Golden State. But that doesn't mean we can't pause and say, hey, this is a this is a rare thing that's happened. Let's see where it goes in the next two weeks. And I will see you, Marcus Thompson. And he's 34, by the way. I think we got to point that out. Like Magic in the 91 finals, which was pretty much the end, was 31 years old. Steph's 34, and <laughs> he could might do and this two going. or three more years. Yeah, he, he could be three, four more years doing this. So, like, it, it's really incredible and worth stopping to say, yo – we don't see this all the time, right? This is not yeah. Believe me, normal. the next the next team that's near the top of the league for ten straight years, I will be talking about them a lot on the yes, Low Post podcast yes, as well. I'll see you either in San Francisco or in whichever city ends up representing the East. Marcus Thompson, thanks for stopping by. Uh, your coverage of the Warriors is second to none, and uh, good luck going forward, my man. Appreciate you, Zach. Thanks for the invite. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.